electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the march to new highs and why one major market watcher still says a big correction is coming and soon. We debate that with our investment committee today. Joining me for the hour are Joe Terranova, John Nigerian, Jenny Harrington is the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Rob Seachins with UBS Private Wealth Management, one of Forbes' top 100 financial advisors. Let's begin with stocks. Less than 3% from a new milestone, yet Morgan Stanley's top strategist, Mike Wilson, says a 10% correction remains the most likely outcome in the near term. Joe Terranova, I want you to tell me whether you agree with this call. He says last week's failure to break through technical resistance for the second time suggests the correction isn't over. He expects softness into and past the election before the next leg of the bull market. Does that make sense to you? Do you agree with that call? So last Monday, we got up to 35, uh, 3549 on an intraday high. The previous high on September 2nd was 3588. So we came close. The reason we pulled back, Scott, is that the absence of a stimulus deal. The conditions are fully in place right now to exceed that 3588 high. When you look at retail sales in the U.S., when you think about the strength of Chinese economic numbers, think about the fact that yesterday we had the single largest travel day here for the airline industry in the United States. Clearly, the conditions are in place. And if I look within the markets itself, it's just not technology on Friday reaching 52-week highs, air freight and logistics, construction and engineering. So the conditions are there. It's the absence of stimulus. Now, for a 10% decline, the way that you get a 10% decline is if you price back in a contested election, which we have already priced out. If we don't have a contested election, we are not going down 10%. I believe the conditions are still favorable to move higher. All right, Jenny, I want to know if you agree with that. Joe talks about the conditions, okay? Let's talk about those conditions. Two weeks from tomorrow, Election Day, right? We've got the virus. Cases are mm-hmm. rising. Uh, hospitalizations are rising. You've got earnings coming this week, 80 S&P companies. Are the conditions ripe for a correction, or are they ripe for new record highs? I don't think they're ripe for that kind of correction. In terms of new record highs, we're pretty much there. So is it do we sustain these levels, or do we just bump along between now and year-end? I don't see any reason why we should surge higher from here, but I also don't see a reason for a huge correction. In his report in Morgan Stanley, he talks about exactly that. Stimulus, election outcome timing, third wave, and then valuations. So those are his reasons for why there could be a 10% correction. I think we've factored most of these things in. We know that we're getting stimulus. We don't know what it's going to be. We don't know the timing. We know that a vaccine's coming. We don't know when. We don't know the timing, but we know it's coming. We know that the election results are going to be over. Joe brings up a good point. If it's contested, that could create some bumpiness. But I even think that is to some degree in people's expectations, or rather the risk of that, the percent chance risk of that. And then you've got valuations. I think what we're going to see in third quarter earnings is we're going to see the base continue to be built. 
We're going to reflect back on what happened over the past quarter. And when we reflect back on that, we're going to see that we've returned somewhat to a more normal pace. Even though, even though cases are rising, we're behaving far more normally than we did six months ago. And that's really positive. So no, I don't see a huge catalyst for a big correction from R here. Rob, I hear complacency. I hear, ah, you know what, the market, it's elections priced in. We're not going to have a contested election. Even if we do, it's not going to be a big deal. Virus cases are rising, but we know how to deal with all that now. Does that make sense? Uh, it does and it doesn't. I, I will tell you that investor positioning is still way off sides. I, I, I still think there's a lot of investors that are hedging a, a contested election outcome. They're nervous about the election and therefore their positioning reflects that. So I would look at Mike's note and say, sure, we can see a lot of volatility because there can be surprises along any of those, uh, those things that he's talking about. However, positioning is broadly reflected. And I would say that most investors are slightly underinvested to their target positions going into the election. In addition, mm -hmm. I think the best, way to, the best way to play this going into the election is play the broadening out. I think, uh, you know, when you move into the, uh, the post-election framework, which is one where, as Jenny said, we'll know the election outcome. We will obviously have some sort of stimulus package next year. How we'll do you still know have we're going to know the outcome? Thing. That's what I'm talking about, this whole idea of complacency around the election. All of a sudden, the, the pendulum has swung hard towards, oh, the election's not going to be a big deal. It's not going to be contested. We'll know the, the winner. How do we know? How do we, how do we make such a big we leap? Know and suggest that it's all going to be smooth and clean. I, 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 do, I, do, I do think it's too much of a presumption, Scott, to say that once we know the election outcome, ultimately we're going to know the policies that come out of that. Listen, it's not a fait accompli that stimulus goes through very easy. What, what if we're in a lame duck session and Biden, is, and Biden is the president? Do you really think we're going to get some sort of stimulus package that's significant across that and between February. I think maybe it's delayed a little bit and that's where I think you see volatility. In the intermediate term, I think we are gonna get answers to these questions. I think we are gonna have a vaccine. We are gonna have better therapeutics. Markets are gonna reopen, but in that interim time period, people are gonna recess. Okay, where are we from an earnings standpoint? What does this mean? And that's where you see volatility. And that's where I think you get positioned to kind of look forward into 2021. And I think broadly, I'm a little more optimistic about that than this interim period. So, John Ajarian, I'm looking at a J.P. Morgan note, OK? Blue wave anticipation is rising based on the latest polls, they say. Speakers and market participants see a blue wave as an increasingly likely outcome with limited time remaining to shift the momentum. The sheer magnitude of early voting is exceeding expectations, appears to favor Democrats. OK, that's a note from J.P. Morgan. I got another one here from Goldman today. Quote, a Democratic sweep would likely lead to a significant boost to disposable income. However, this would most directly benefit the unemployed and lower income households who are less likely to be in the market for home ownership, suggesting a fairly modest boost to housing. John and Jerry, what do you think about those two notes? I think that uh, those two notes, along with what Mike Wilson said, Judge, about breaking out is hard to do. I, I love that part of his note. Um, I think that uh, we're likely to see some stimulus. Um, we both know that uh, the longer it takes, the worse it is going to be for exactly that cohort that you just described, Scott. 
the, the folks that are uh, not upper middle class, but that are in the middle and or beneath that, that really need the stimulus right now. I don't know that the stimulus is as necessary for the rest of those above that line, whatever that line is, Scott, whether that's upper middle class or whether it's middle middle class. I think that the real issue here is that uh, if we see cases which like, for instance, Wisconsin has the worst right now, and they're less than 10% of hospital beds. So in other words, cases are increasing at a dramatic rate. We all know that. But the cases, like I say, Wisconsin being the worst, only 10% of beds are being used right now, which is a good thing. Well, all right. They I found get, better ways you. to treat it. Hospitalizations are going up. Okay, that's just a fact. Dr. Gottlieb today on Squawk Box says we're probably in the seventh inning of the acute phase of the pandemic right now, but the hardest part mm -hmm. is probably ahead. Um, that's from Dr. Gottlieb. So Very likely. You know, right. Mm -hmm. You got some people saying that we rounded the corner, and we got the final turn and all this other stuff. But that's why I'm wondering mm -hmm. whether people within the market, investors, are complacent about what could be ahead, Doc, as, as it relates to the virus. We're not going to shut right. down. And we my, know that. We're not going to shut down no. again at the magnitude right. that we did. But consumers could still dial back their own behavior, and that could have an impact on the economy moving forward. Yep. And, Scott, you and I talk about this all the time, that it's really that first surge, whether it's volatility, whether it's pandemic, whatever it is, that first surge usually is when that panic hits. And every additional hit, like when you, for instance, pop to 40 in the VIX, and the next time you can't hardly get into the mid-30s, and the next time you can't hold 30. That kind of thing is exactly what plays out with the pandemic in people's minds as well, Scott. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, cases uh, are up dramatically. They're basically pushing towards those April highs, and yet the market response and individual investor response, not nearly the same. So, to your point, are we complacent? Yeah, we always build in a little complacency as each one of these surges, whether it's market surges, whether it's pandemic surges, whatever it might be, Scott, we you. always see a little complacency build. Yes. The question is, is it too much complacency or is it just the right level? And I say, yeah. based on what we see right now, it's the right level. Rob, I hear you. I hear you. I know you want to make a okay. point. I mean, Piper says just that. Yeah, we're complacent, but they're still mm -hmm. going 3,600 on the S&P. You're going to get mm -hmm. stimulus, they say, uh, one way or the other, whether it's now or later. And yep. oh, by the way. Right. Don't completely discount the idea of an 11th hour stimulus deal on the Hill in the days ahead. I mean, you know, it hasn't the door hasn't been completely closed either, Rob. So what's the point you want to make? Uh, so right now it is all about stimulus. But also, I think there's something natural that happens when we have front burner items that rest there for long periods of time, whether it be Y2K Brexit, the Trump presidency, markets tend to desensitize to those things the longer they stay front burner items. So I don't know if it's complacency or it's just a desensitization to the fact because of some of the positioning changes that we've seen. So markets, I will tell you, Scott, I've been completely shocked at some of the news that we saw last week, specifically out of the Eurozone in the rising cases and how, how markets behaved very, very well on those days. So it shows you the strength of the bid that's under the market. And I think part of it is 
this desensitization to what has been a very front burner issue, one that has all our attention and one that is really being addressed as fast as possible. Yes, it's not going completely in the right way because of some of the things that have happened yeah. in terms of us not wearing masks, maybe reopening, but it is a front burner item, and I think people know it's here, so why react? So Pianos tend to hit us in the back of the head. They don't hit us in the face. Yeah, well, we want to try and give our investors a chance to see what's coming and not get smacked in the back of the head. Joe, I, I guess we take all of the, you know, the, the headline <laughs> topics that we just discussed, all of the major issues that are in front of us. Mm -hmm. But I think our viewers also want to know, based on all of that, besides just opining on how you think the overall market is going to be impacted right. by all of that, um, what specific moves are you making or do you plan to make as a result of things that could be in front of us? If, in fact, the, the prognostications and the polls are right, are you making any moves today based on what the election outcome could be? And if so, what would it be? Uh, wh what I have done recently relates to just risk management in select sectors. So I have a, a very strong thesis surrounding the industrial sector. And that's represented in my positioning with Deere, more recently Caterpillar, and previous Old Dominion. Um, I had a pair back, uh, my exposure to industrial, so I sold out of Masco. That's something that I have done more recently. Um, but on the other side of all of this, Scott, what's going to be incredibly important for me is where is it exactly do yields price? Because I believe that's where the source of capital that could power equities higher, both domestically and globally, will come from. It will come from investors that have been in fixed income for many, many years. And that's something that's going to be uh, a catalyst for me in the decisions that I make. But those decisions will be made on the other side of the election and knowing what the outcome is going to be. You're calling the end of the bull bond bull market, Joe Terranova? Is that what you're doing? No, I would never do that, sir. No, absolutely <laughs> not. I don't Listen, Scott, I, I think if I'll anything, <laughs> what we have we what what we have learned is to be prepared for for anything. And I said before, you could have a 10% decline that Mike Wilson's calling for on a contested election. There's a variety of different outcomes here. There's even the potential outcome that President Trump wins re-election and what would be perceived to be a higher equities market could be a lower equities market. You have to be prepared for everything and understand what your risk assumption is going to be. So, no, we don't call the end of the bond bull market. We call for a rise in yields that equates to a positive impact on equities domestically and globally. Jenny, you're raising your hand. I mean, I'll, not 100% seriously, but 95%, I'll call the end of the, bear, of the bull market on bonds. Just last week, I was finishing quarterly reviews for my clients, and many of them where we manage balanced portfolios, they've had allocations to bonds, you know, 45%, 30% for years, for decades. And in these quarterly reviews, I'm writing to people, hey, we need to reassess this because there is not return left to be had here. And if you don't believe in negative rates, then there's not capital appreciation return left there either. So I know that there is some degree of money that always needs to flow into fixed income from the endowments and the sovereignties and the insurance companies. But I think on the individual side, there isn't money that needs to flow in. And I think that there could be a rotation out of that. I also think if we see inflation, that could drive yields higher too, further ending the bull market okay. and bonds. So, so I'd be comfortable making that call. Rob Seachin... You know, he's feeling good. His, he's got the helmet behind him. His Steelers are 5-0. and So he wants to come on today and he's make a bull call, too. And he thinks that rates are going to go up. So he wants to come on and stick his neck out and say, buy the financials. <laughs> really? <laughs> hey, 
You you love I'll that one, up, Scotty. <laughs> I, I, I was actually a little nervous on mentioning that on the show because people have been chopped down before <laughs> for this. But listen, last week's news was really good. If you get a vaccine, if you get stimulus, the direction and rates will be higher. But it's it, it's it's more than rates. It is capital markets activity, mm -hmm. as you saw, and lowering loan, loan loss provisions, which raise earnings. In addition, right. there's a healthy margin of safety in financials that just based on valuations. And so um, they're going to be the beneficiaries of this rotation to cyclicals. And I think you can't ignore that. We're already seeing that month to date financials have done really well. The cyclical aspects of, of, of this month's performance have really been driven by industrials, financials, materials. And then you look at, at year to date, it's been an absolute win for growth, but marrying in some of that broadening out. I'd say what we're doing for clients is really simple. We're playing the broadening out trade, holding what's winning and raising a little cash in anticipation of volatility. And that cash is coming at the expense of fixed income, specifically high yield. And that's how we're positioning for tomorrow. John, I want to know, you're, you're always an active trader. I, I will ask you the same question I posed to, to Joe. This idea of trying to put trades on now in anticipation of what could happen in a couple of weeks, if not before, are you starting to do that? Um, today's not one of those days, Scott. I added to some positions, and I'll describe some of those in unusual activity. But what I'm seeing right now, Scott, is uh, there's a lot of smart people that watch your show every day. And a lot of those smart people know that the Senate is not anywhere near the number that Mnuchin is talking about. So when we see the market rise or fall on these stimulus talks, Mnuchin can agree to whatever he wants with Speaker Pelosi, Scott, but very few of us believe that that can get passed. In other words, th there is something else that is lifting the markets here, whether it's China industrial production, whether it's retail spending in China, whether it's a bunch of other things. There are uh, forces at work, Scott, that are not based on these stimulus talks. Stimulus, when that uh, word, when that phrase comes up, anywhere in a news story, the algos react to it like that. That's why we saw it dump from up 25 in the S&Ps to down 15, you know, pretty quickly, Scott. That's not people trading, that's algos. It's real, but it's algos. Nobody who's watching this show really thinks that there's a stomach for a $2 trillion uh, stimulus in the Senate right now. That's not what McConnell has right. said That's time right. and time again. That's right. So secretary can agree to whatever he wants. It ain't going to happen. But do we, do we, so in other words, do, do we do we care about earnings? Right. We got a huge week. We got 80, yes. 80 S&P companies on the docket, including Dow components, eight of them. IBM Travelers, Procter & Gamble, IBM. Verizon, Coca-Cola, uh, Dow, Intel, Intel, uh, American Express. Yep. Market still cares about earnings or, you know, because the guidance, we couldn't get guidance from companies because they didn't know what was going on. The actual numbers don't mean much. Unless you I miss big. The actual unless you miss, unless you're a I fast actual, and you and you miss so big that you start questioning the, yeah. the run up in some of those kinds of stocks. Doc, John Nigerian. Yeah, you're right. And uh, thanks for rubbing salt in that wound from last week, Scott, because 
I was one of those guys that had unusual activity oh, yeah, in Fastly. Doc, you got to answer fell for out that. Of bed on TikTok. I'm glad you hold on. I don't I want did. you. I, you got to answer <laughs> for that. What's the deal with this Fastly? Okay. okay, you had unusual activity on it. You were all long for the ride. You mentioned mm-hmm. it on the show, and that thing got knocked off a yep. cliff on its head. So, you know, yep, some of the viewers sure did, on Twitter Scott, have asked buying... me to ask you about it. So I'm asking you now. Well. And I did get a chance briefly last week to address it, but I'll address it right now. When your biggest customer, Scott, uh, which is TikTok, they've said time and time again, um, when your biggest customer uh, allegedly is stepping back from a spend pretty dramatically, that's why you worry about having one customer that is over 30 or 40 percent of your book. So this was just a, a we thought a good read and December options. And then when it fell out of bed, I was very happy. Not that it fell out of bed, Scott, but I was happy I didn't own the stock and that I owned a call spread for two bucks instead of potentially that horrible 30% drop or whatever fastly suffered. So I deserve those slings and arrows, Scott, for that call last week. But I'm very happy that it was a small loss versus, you know, that $30 or more loss that it would have been if you were in the stock. I You're appreciate, absolutely right. I hear you. I appreciate it. I appreciate you um, discussing that. Let's get, let's get back to earnings, Jenny. I don't want to run past that. Yeah. Um, you got IBM. That's after the belt today. you got Intel, which is on Thursday. Uh, you know, what, what are your expectations going in? You can talk about IBM. Uh, you know, they had the, the spin. Are you feeling more confident about this company's prospects now? I am, and I'm excited about the call tonight to hear what management has to say and how they address the long-term strategy. But I also think that when you have something as inexpensive as IBM with as strong a dividend, it kind of goes into that better than a bond category. And we all know that both for Intel and IBM, expectations are zilch. But can I just get back to one thing on the Fastly from last week? Because when we talk about the market broadening and we talk about the importance of earnings, I think, I think if we look at Fastly versus like Goldman last week, I think that is the perfect highlight of why earnings are going to matter so much this quarter. What we're, going to have, what we're going to be able to see is a reflection of what happened over the past three months, and we're going to see real numbers. And you see zero expectations for a Goldman, and they actually do well. You see sky-high expectations for a Fastly. They miss, they get beat up. So as these companies report this week, I think we're going to see more of that. We're going to see a lot of companies where expectations are unrealistic, and we're going to see the companies in, in my portfolio, like on that screen you just showed, got American Express on Friday, Intel, Verizon, AT&T, um, IBM, the expectations are for nothing. And they're all trading at multiples of like 12 times or less. Many of them have dividend yields of 4, 5, 6%. So I think that there's very little they can do to disappoint at this point. I mean, um, but that's I think not, the return that, that of... Is not, that, that is not mm-hmm. the, the most uh, high vote of confidence, though, right? There's very little they can do no, to disappoint. It's not. Really? We've come to that? Because Stacy Rascon, by the way, Jenny, who's the number one analyst in the chip space, says yeah. basically those same things. Right now, he says the bull case on Intel stock seems to be, quote, cheap hope. In other words, the shares are inexpensive right. and maybe something will go right. But that doesn't sound like a hugely compelling case to us at the moment. That sounds exactly like what you're saying. Okay, but you... Or you can look at another side of that, which is, I know Stacey Razcon's really bearish, but you can look at, say, for example, the Baird analyst, who's quite bullish, who says they still have industry-leading performance in chips. 
They're the eighth largest contributor to earnings in the S&P 500. They're pumping out $20 billion. I'm pretty sure Intel's management like didn't become idiots overnight. You don't pump out $20 billion of earnings when you're not actually running a good company. And there's a hate fest on it right now. Everybody hates Intel. It reminds me of when I bought Qualcomm four years ago when everybody hated Qualcomm and it was trading at $53. So there's just so much negativity here. So you know what? Maybe on the call to get today, we get, sorry, on the call this week, we get some insight into what may happen with Taiwan Semiconductor. That could actually be bullish. We could get an update on the 7 NAND chip, and maybe it's going a little better or not as bad as expected. That could be positive. Maybe we start to get some insight on when earnings start to return and grow, start to return to growth again. So there's more positive, there's more positive potential than there is negative because everybody's negative. All right. I hear maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. It's the maybe. We'll call it the maybe stock. Maybe but that's always it's the a case. maybe stock. Uh, Joe Turnover. Isn't that always the case with everything? Yeah, but I mean, at least going into some things, you have a pretty good idea. Or your your expectations are higher than just saying, "Well, I mean, the stock's cheap, and how much worse can it possibly get?" That sounds like what we're approaching <laughs> with Intel. I would Intel. argue that prior to. Okay, but I would argue that prior to February, there was a lot more definitive facts, definitive financials available for almost every com company. And then everything went up in smoke, right? Between after the pandemic, everything went up. And the maybes, the maybes came in just as crazily with the DocuSigns and the Teslas and the Pelotons. Like those are all maybes, maybes, maybes. So I think maybe those will disappear and actual fact and financial will start to return. Okay, we will see. So, so hopefully next quarter we'll say Intel should earn right. X. Intel should grow at 3%. Okay. Uh, John Najarian, to you, uh, the most important one or two earnings reports this week in your mind are, because, I mean, you do own a bunch of stocks on the list. Uh, Abbott, yep. LVS, I you do. got calls in American Airlines and Capital mm -hmm. One, Key Corp, Coca-Cola, Snap. Uh, what do you think? Well, Scott, I, I think where Jenny's right to place her optimism on Intel, and Pete's got it, I don't. I'm in AMD, I'm in Taiwan Semi. But what I will say is, they have this CPU that is due sometime either between the January and March time frame. It's called Rocket Lake. It's for gamers. And if they do come out with that, Scott, and if it gets positives, that's all that if game that you were just playing with Jenny. But if they come out with some positive comments on this, that could be something that would really push Intel in a big way, Scott. So watch for that because they've said, and it, whenever you have a code name for some product that you're launching, it gets me interested. And this is one that um, I'm not in yet, but I like the idea that they have positive something to say about that and that the first quarter of next year looks a lot better because of it. As soon as I see some unusual, Scott, I'll jump on that. All right. I'll, we'll hold you to that. I'll come back to you certainly after the results mm -hmm. are in uh, All right. for, for a stock that's done. I mean, it's just said nothing. And now it's even moving lower as we're discussing mm -hmm. it. Uh, all right, Joe, uh, your audio is back. So tell me, the, the yeah. one or two most important earnings reports this week for our viewers to pay attention to or what? Sure. Chipotle, Netflix, and Tesla. Look where high expectations are and subsequent do that. Do you get the response within the market? Do you get the performance? Think back to July, Scott, and think about the performance from the fangs in, after we got their earnings reports. It really acted as the foundation for the August rally in the markets and a lot of those growth names. So I look specifically at those three names and I view them as important to what we're able to do. And I think it also offers a glimpse into the following weeks 
where we're going to get more of the FANGs reporting. And I think that's really where the focus is going to be for investors in this quarter. Yeah, well, that's when it's going to get really interesting, right? When you, when you start to get the, the FANGs, as you said, these mega cap growth names and the election all in the same real, you know, tight time frame, that's going to be uh, super interesting. All right, we'll take a quick break. Come back. A bullish call on Bristol-Myers and Goldman getting its price target raised. We'll debate those stocks coming up next. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. In Wisconsin, a judge has reimposed the state's 25 percent capacity limit at bars, restaurants and other indoor spaces. This as a field hospital has been opened at the state fairgrounds and plans for more COVID hospitals are being discussed. Wisconsin set a new daily record for COVID infections last week. Tropical storm Epsilon has formed in the central Atlantic, the latest in what has been a very active hurricane season. Forecasters say Epsilon could reach hurricane strength by Thursday morning. For the first time since the early days of the pandemic, the TSA has counted more than a million air travelers going through its checkpoints in a single day. However, that is still 60 percent fewer people on planes than the same day last year. And in Cincinnati, Halloween treats for some of the animals at the zoo. That's Fiona, the hippo, enjoying, well, that was actually an elephant. There's Fiona, the hippo. <laughs> Gorillas and elephants also got in on the fun as well. There we go. You're up to date, Scott. And we know our hippos from our elephants. Back to you. We do. Good, good, good. All right, Sue, thanks. That's Sue Herrera. All right, we have a bullish call in the healthcare space. Bristol Myers upgraded today to a buy at Guggenheim, the firm citing attractive risk reward. It's our call today. Jenny Harrington, you own it, and about a 3% yielder. This is an interesting one. So we didn't actually buy Bristol-Myers directly. We owned Celgene. And then when Bristol-Myers bought Celgene, we took a peek at that. We loved the story so much at that point that we actually increased our position, our position in Bristol. One of the things that I think is so interesting here is you have a stock right now trading at about an eight times multiple. Meanwhile, they should have about 18% earnings growth next year as the synergies continue to kick in with Celgene. And if you look at their peers, many of their peers are trading 14, 16, 18 times earnings, and not even growing nearly as fast as that. One other thing, after 2021, when earnings start to tame, you know, get more reasonable, they'll be growing in about the 8% range. So the upgrade here is really based mostly on one drug, and the reason we love Bristol-Myers is because they're the leader in a lot of cardiac drugs, a lot of cancer drugs, and we look at it as just a really robust portfolio, an excellent management team who does smart things like buying Celgene. So you've got cheap, you've got a nice yield, got decent earnings growth ahead. You've got an awesome portfolio of, um, of drugs. So, yeah, great upgrade. Thank you. John, you, you though, prefer Abbott over, over Bristol. Why, why don't you tell us why? Well, uh, 
it's it's the one that uh, I had seen on that big dip that it had, Scott, when uh, they were cutting back and all of a sudden analysts cut targets and things, and the stock fell rather dramatically. I'm sure at some point Bristol may have done the same, Scott, but this one was a buy for me because of that. And then as I was just able to keep selling calls, selling calls, selling calls as it rallied, it's been a great stock to hold on to. So um, I've not been tempted to switch horses in the middle of the stream, Scott. I like this one, Abbott, going forward because of the earnings that they have that are solid and strong because of the pipeline and because of what they're doing in terms of either treatments and or vaccines. So I, I'm not against Bristol, but I happen to get on this one and I'm sticking with it. You think there's better elsewhere also, <laughs> Joe? I mean, including Abbott, but just better opportunities to deliver alpha away from Bristol. Yeah, to deliver alpha and, and seeing really signs of, of growth. Abbott and Eli Lilly, uh, those are the two names that I own. Um, I thought Jenny's comments were very thoughtful and, and, and I agree with them and also the call. But understand, listen, Scott, 2020, it's, you know, the Robin Hood trader year. Bristol Myers is not screening high on the list for Robin Hood traders. There's, there's something about just the, the characteristics of the stock that just doesn't align with the environment that Wait we're a in so right that, now. That's how, you're, doesn't mean that's how you're buying stocks now? You're looking at what's screening high on Robinhood, Joe? No, not what alpha generation opportunity, and, and that certainly aligns with Robinhood traders. Um, you're looking, how can I generate alpha in this environment? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think for the better part of the last six or seven months, since the lows in March, Bristol Myers has traded between 55 and 65. I think it's priced at 61 as we're speaking now. So that's not much alpha generation uh, opportunity for me. All right, Jenny, I'll, I'll give you the last word on this. It, thank you. So just taking Lily for an example, you've got Lily that's trading at 18 times earnings and has 10% earnings growth coming into 2021. So to me, if there's alpha generation to be had, even the Robin Hooders, if that's who we're looking to, might at some point say, hey, the relative valuation is really wide here. This thing, Lily has already performed. Let's not say that past performance is a guarantee of future returns. Let's look for something new and fresh. And I think that the money could swing into Bristol Myers. It should. All right. We will see. We'll see what happens. Good conversation. Let's bring in Rahel Solomon now. She has some other calls for us that we want you to know about today. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Scott. So on the heels of Goldman's blowout results last week, Credit Suisse is raising estimates for 2020 and also raising its price target. Seven bucks to 262 rating remains outperform. QuidRx getting a slew of initiations, 14 total, half buys, half holds, no sells here. Uh, Evercore, which has an outperform on the stock, notes that QuidRx hardly has any competition and the digital prescription total addressable market is massive. That's how you can see the stock is down about 4%. And Jefferies is initiating coverage of RH with an underperform price target at $320 a share. It's one of only two negative ratings on the stock, so a bit of a bold call. Analysts note that RH has 99% domestic exposure, and it's competing against those that have more of a global presence. And also, Scott, that with the election around the corner, we thought this was an interesting nugget, that the market may be discounting the potential of unfavorable tax policies unwealthy consumers and that trickle down on discretionary spending. This stock also down almost 4%. It's an interesting thesis, uh, Rahel. So there, people are just going to stop buying expensive furniture, expensive, perhaps. <laughs> uh, refurbished driftwood or whatever that is. 12-month uh, 12 12 change on RH, guys, is uh, up 105%. So we shall see. Uh, Rahel, thank you. 
John Adjaran, you want to buy Goldman Sachs? Price target goes up to 262 at Credit Suisse. They go outperform. They reiterate that. We saw, you know, Goldman yep. deliver earnings last week. The stock was, was down like 3.5%, I, I think I remember seeing. Uh, Jenny likes it. What about you? I like it, Scott, and I'm looking for that entry right now. Um, last week it popped over 213, maybe even 214 in the pre, Scott. And then, as you say, it finished down that same day after being up as much as 4% in the pre, it finished down. Still is down right now at 207, 206 area. I think that might be a pretty good entry. If I had an endorsement from any institutional paper, Scott, I'd jump all over it. But I am very close to pulling the trigger on this one. And I hope that I get that excuse to get into it. But I have not pulled the trigger yet. All right. Up next, we will tell you the big ETFs you need to watch today and tomorrow. The CNBC FA Summit brings together the country's top advisory firms to explore the state of the markets. Join Jay Clayton, Mario Gabelli, more forward-thinking advisors to discover new ways to address the increasingly complex needs of your clients. Our Josh Brown included in that, we are happy to say. You can visit cnbcevents.com slash FA Summit to learn more and register. We're back on the half right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Bob Pisani here with the ETF Edge portion of our show. Our guest today, Tom Lydon from ETF Trends, Paul Delaquilla from Defiance. And the SPAC boom remains the big story of the summer, so much so it now has its own ETF. Paul, you just launched the Defiance SPAC ETF. That was just a couple weeks ago. Now, explain to us, how does it own SPACs when in most cases we don't even know what the companies are going to be owning for about two years? It's a great question, Bob. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, and I actually think that's part of the appeal. So what we did with SPAK, uh, it launched on October 1st. What we're providing investors is a combination of those pre-IPO SPACs, the biggest and most liquid ones that are in anticipation of doing a deal, uh, as well as those post-IPO SPACs uh, that have merged. Uh, and those, uh, those companies that have already IPO'd, like a DraftKings or a Clarity, for instance. 
Yeah. Then I want to move on and talk about the IPO business a little, Tom. That's also on fire. The other part of the public going public aspect, the IPO ETF is up almost 200 percent since the March bottom. It's just shy of a historic high right now. Asana, Palantir, GoodRx, Unity Software, uh, JFrog, all of them seem to be working this year. What could go wrong? And do you anticipate being even higher towards the end of the year? Well, as you know, Bob, there's a lot of pent-up demand. The number of companies going public are only a third of what we saw 10 and 20 years ago. So especially with innovation, as Paul's pointing out, this pent-up demand and being able to institute this SPAC program is really, really helpful. However, it's diversification. So if you look at this SPAC ETF, there are only five companies that make up almost 50% of the market cap there. We're going to see more coming in, and to a great degree, as Paul said as well, we don't always know what the underlying are going to be. It's kind of like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. However, we're on the cutting edge, and I love that SPAC ETF because we're going to be able to invest in companies pre-IPO, and and there's a huge amount of demand there. Yeah, and Paul, just to clarify this, 80% of what you already own are SPACs that have already announced the companies that they're they're buying into, essentially. You're only 20% is really what you've got is companies where you don't exactly know what they're going to own. So you, the uncertainty factor is somewhat reduced here. Am I correct? Paul? That's correct, Bob. And as Tom pointed out, there is going to be a maturation to the SPAC market. So we think this product is very indicative of where the market is today. Um, and as it expands and as it matures, uh, you'll see the ETF evolve as well. Okay. Paul and Tom, of course, thanks very much. And remember, tune into our ETF show at 1 p.m. Eastern time. More on the SPAC craze. We'll be talking about the 5G ETF. Paul also has. That's also raking in money this year. And the growth versus value ETFs. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob. Appreciate it. Thank you. We'll see you then. Coming up, our experts ready to answer your questions. Ask Halftime is next. Please send us your questions by video, too. We'll air them on the show. Email us. AskHalftimeCNBC.com. We're back in just 30 seconds. Welcome back. We're answering your questions now. First up, we have a video question for Rob Seachin. Hey, Halftime panel. This is Eric Van Buskirk in Greeley, Colorado. My question to you is you often see trading in this period of time called extended hours. What exactly uh, are these extended hours, and should a novice investor be trading during this time? Thanks a bunch. Love the show. All right. We appreciate that. Appreciate the question, of course. Rob, what's the answer? First, thanks, Eric, for a great question. We get that (laughs) a lot from our clients. Um, Extended hours are the hours after regular trading hours, which is from 4 to 8 p.m. and then from 4.30 in in the morning, or 4 in the morning till 9.30 when the markets open. Um, Retail investors make up about 5% of that activity. Um, Professional investors or institutional investors make up the rest of the activity. And I would say that you're disadvantaged in that market from a a liquidity, from a spread standpoint, from from a volatility standpoint. And so I would say that keeping your activity in regular hours makes the most sense unless you have some type of trading acts. Okay, good stuff. Thanks for the question. Thanks for the answer. Video question now for John. Hi there, it's Carl. I'm calling from uh, Malta in Europe, if you know where Malta is. 
Um, I follow your, prog your program religiously, uh, every day basically. Um, my question is with, is with regards to DraftKings. Uh, is it too late for me to invest in DraftKings, especially seeing its recent rally, especially which was quite surprising during the September general market lows? Thank you and keep it up. Awesome question. Thank you and thank you for... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate that. It's All right, John. It's what, great what about, to hear that. Yeah, what, what's the answer? All the way from Malta uh, and all the way to Malta, I think at 42 bucks a share, which is about where the stock hit today, I think that's an incredible opportunity. So I am buying call spreads in there today, uh, and I already owned a piece of it coming into today. So in other words, I'm adding to positions. Okay, good stuff. Uh, watching that stock right there, a little bit of a down day. All right, Joe, to you, uh, Ali in uh, Toronto. Uh, with COVID prolonging, is Lulu a buy? Lulu is a buy, but I think understanding sentiment in terms of your positions is important. My sentiment towards Lulu is I don't expect much to happen until the December earnings report. At that point, you could get some positive catalysts in terms of gross margin expansion and even some of the store constraints coming off. So stay with it, buy it if you, if you want to, but you're buying it on anticipation for coming quarters, not now. You got it. Okay. Uh, Jenny, to you from James in Seattle. What, what do you think about Lumen? L-U-M-N. Uh, L-U-M-N. Lumen is the old century link. So the dividend's the same as it was before it renamed into Lumen. It's got a 10% dividend yield. There's not a lot of growth. They're paying down debt hand over fist. That dividend is safe. If you use the rule of 72, you should double your money in seven years just by collecting the yield. Maybe there's some growth on top of that, too. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, everybody, for the questions. More trades are ahead, including John's unusual activity. Don't forget about that. And as we head to break, take a look at some of the stocks hitting all-time highs today, including FedEx, Best Buy, and Autodesk. Halftime's back in just two minutes. Are you a veteran? Do you have a question for the Halftime Investment Committee? Email us a video with your name and rank. Ask Halftime at CNBC.com. You can be featured on our special show on Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Time for the futures outlook. The 10-year is moving higher today, hitting its highest level in more than a week. Earlier today at the whopping 75 basis points. Scott Nations joins us now to tell us how he is trading it. <laughs> you got the uh, sarcasm. Right. <laughs> yield, yield a little bit higher, yes. Um, magisterial number, almost 80 basis points yeah. on the 10-year. Uh, that means the prices for the 10-year are moving lower. It's down slightly, even though it's still in the middle of this sideways range that we've been in since mid-March. Uh, completely sideways range, pretty narrow range, too. Mostly noise. I would not try and trade this, but, you know, Scott, it gets really interesting if prices do break out to the downside, that's where I would really like to get it, be, be interested in trading. Listen, the Fed's still in charge, but any sort of return to normalcy is going to be bearish for, for bond prices. We know that we have a $3.1 trillion deficit, so there's this huge issuance. So I would be a trader uh, of the 10-year by selling the December contract, 138 even, on a stop in. So we're waiting for the market to drop below this range. Uh, my target, once we do that, would be 135 even. We're always going to trade these with a stop. Stop to the upside would be 138.24. How did I pick that? 
Well, that is back into this range that we've been in. So $1,000 per point in the 10-year future. So we're risking $750 to make $3,000. Good stuff. Scotty, thank you. See you next time. Scott Nations, we'll come back. We'll do final trades. All right, we're back. John and Jerry, we're going to do unusual in in just a minute, though. I do want to correct something that you said earlier um, on the show. When when you said that only 10% of hospital beds in Wisconsin are currently full as a result of COVID. Um, In fact, the number is 82%. The 10% number is the increase in hospitalizations in hospital beds in the last two weeks. Okay, that's the rate of change in the last two weeks. The actual number of beds, John, is 82% in Wisconsin full and 26% of ICU beds are full. Okay? Just want to make sure. Yep. That's the the stats that I tweeted from uh, Axios. So thank you, Scott, for clarifying. Right. Right. Axios had the right number. Whatever. Mm -hmm. What's your unusual activity, John? Um, Snap. Scott, snap, we've got buying at the 2850 strike, buying at the 30, buying at the 31 strike that expires this week. I bought the 2850, Scott. Second one, real quick, Pinterest, P-I-N-S. These are options, Scott, that expire next Friday, the 30th. They're buying a lot of calls in Pinterest. This has been a good one for us, so we've loaded up on this one as well. Okay. Uh, Jenny, need a final trade. Just give me a name, please. Sure. Navient. Okay, thanks. Rob, name. Joe, we got something for me? Doubling down on XLF. Pause. Pause is an understatement. Uh, The exchange begins now. (laughs) You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.